Good morning. It's good to be with you again. I look forward to coming back. It was fun the last time. I think you guys were just starting off Ephesians chapter 1 in Sunday school, and so I was excited to come and find that we were working through one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's fun. Um, so it's good to be with you this morning. I'm excited to open and share God's word with you. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Zach was here, uh, my Pastor Zach, Zach Dietrich to you, right? Uh, and he worked through Titus chapter 1, verses I think like 6 to 9. And so this morning, we're just going to continue through the book of Titus. But before we do that, uh, I'd like to open, open us up in a word of prayer. And so uh, if you'll pray with me this morning, and then we'll dive into God's word and see uh, what it has to say for us. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the fact that we have the ability and the opportunity to sing songs like, Oh, Praise Him. And God, we recognize this morning that we are broken people, that we are people in need of your grace and in need of your love, that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And yet in your love, you brought us alive in Christ. In your love, you made us sons and daughters of God. And, and now we can praise you and sing songs to you and we can approach you as Father. And so we just praise you for that today. We don't take that lightly. And we ask now that as we come to your word, that you'd use a text like Titus in our lives, that you'd make us more like Jesus as a result of the things that we read, that you'd change our hearts from the inside out, that we wouldn't leave this place today without having become more like Christ, without having examined our own hearts and just tried to see, is there something that we need to change? And so we just ask for your grace as we look at your text. Help me to have clarity as I speak. And help us to have ears to hear what you'd have to say this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, open and turn with me to Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses six, uh, verses 10 to 16. That's our text this morning again. Uh, last week, if you are here, we walked through, or Zach walked through, the qualifications of an elder. And as I was reading through your bulletin, it said it gave a list of verses this morning to read through as you guys consider and continue to look for a pastor, and one of the passages was the passage that you looked at last week. And so I just want to read that for us this morning because it, it really segues. The, the verses we're looking at this morning in verses 10 through 16 really come on the heels of what we looked at last week. And so I just want to read these verses uh, together this morning, starting in verse 6. It says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordinate for an overseer as God's stewards must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And in verse 6 through 8, what we see is that there's an obvious standard, right, for those who are seeking the position of elder, that when we look for a man to place in a position of leadership over our church, there's an obvious set of things that should be observable, right? And why is that true? Why is that, does Paul say that that needs to be the case? He says in verse 9, he must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And so, I'm assuming last week what you guys discussed and what was talked about is, is the reality that there's a, a standard of living that an elder should have, that a, a pastor or overseer should have. But the reason why he gives is so that he can teach and that he can instruct. 
and that he can push back against false teaching. And the reality this morning is this, that when there's a void of good teachers, when there's a void of godly leadership, usually people who are deceptive and usually false teachers come in. And, and so then our text continues and it points out what does a false teacher look like? I was joking this week that I kind of got like the short straw a little bit. Like I'm, I get to preach on false teachers, right? And so that's kind of fun. It's, it's a good text. It's the Bible. But I was joking that, oh, I get to teach on false teachers. But we're going to walk through that and see what does it look like when somebody who's a false teacher comes in and tries to disrupt the church. And why is it important that we have elders and leaders in a church that love God and love his word? And how can we defend against those things? But before we do that, I just want to share with you uh, a little bit of a story. There's or kind of a a story that you've probably heard, but every year, I there's a couple of books that I read through about once a year. So one of those series that I read through once a year is called The Space Trilogy uh, by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read it, you should check it out. It's great. Um, about once a year, I end up reading through The Space Trilogy. Another series that I end up reading through about once a year uh, is Lord of the Rings. It's just a great story, right? And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Frodo Baggins, he gets a ring from his uncle Bilbo, right? And it's a magic ring, and it can make the one who wears it disappear. So, like, everybody wants a magic ring, right? That's kind of cool. But they find out, you're, you're familiar, they find out later that this ring belongs to the Dark Lord Sauron. He's in the land of Mordor. He wants to take over the world. And even worse, they find out that if Sauron gets this magic ring in his hands, then... He could just take over and wipe out all of Middle-earth or what they call Middle-earth, and that's just the land that they live in. It's imaginative. Uh, it's not real. But uh, what's interesting is that at one point, this wizard, Gandalf, he goes to this guy named Saruman, not to be confused with Sauron. So you have two people, Sauron, Saruman, and he goes to Saruman, who's also a wizard, and he looks for help and for guidance to figure out how are we going to destroy the one ring that could rule them all, right? How are we going to destroy him? And while he's there, he finds out that Saruman, this wizard, is actually had been corrupted, that he'd actually been taken over, that he was studying and looking into how to defeat this guy named Sauron. And, and while he was trying to study this dark lord, he actually became corrupted and was part of the ally. And what's crazy about that, you're like, okay, Nick, this is just a story. I know I, it's fun. It's, I enjoy the story. But what's crazy about that, as I was reading, is to think that somebody who was once their ally, this Sauron, or Saruman, who they thought they could put their hope in, that they thought they could put their trust in, actually becomes the very one who's trying to destroy and to take them over. That He ends up being an ally of the enemy. And the reality this morning is this. We don't live in Middle Earth. You're like, thank goodness for that, right? There aren't hobbits here this morning. There's no wizards here this morning. We don't have elves joining us in our service today. The reality is we don't live in Middle Earth. But what's true is that we are on a mission. Our mission is not to destroy a ring in Mount Doom. We're on a mission, and our mission as a church is to make more and better disciples, to make disciples of all nations. That's the mission that we're on. And the reality is that it's possible that there are people that we would consider allies, that there are people that look good on the outside but have the, the ability and the capacity to destroy and to deceive in ways that we never thought possible. And this is why Paul lays out what does a false teacher look like. This is why he lays it out because people that we would maybe even consider our allies at times 
have the possibility and the potential of being deceptive and of taking us out. And so look with me at your Bibles at verse 10. This is where we're starting. It says this, for, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. And that word for is transitional between verses 9 and 10. So he says that a, a pastor elder needs to be able to teach. He needs to be able to instruct. And then he gives us the reason. He says, for there's something going on. And, and what I want to do this morning as we walk through this text is I want to first give you the description that Paul gives of false teachers. I want to give you the deeds that are true of false teachers. And then I want to give you the response to false teachers. Then we'll look at what is underlying all this. So just kind of give you a roadmap this morning. But the first thing I want you to notice is this, the description of false teachers. And we're going to see this in verse 10. We're also going to see it in verses 12 and 13. And so the first thing he says is he says that they're insubordinate. Insubordinate simply means that they're not submissive to those in leadership. That Paul and Titus had clearly presented the truth of the gospel. He presented the message of the gospel and these false teachers were coming along and they were insubordinate. They weren't submitting themselves to the truth of the gospel. Next, he says that they're empty talkers. So not only were they insubordinate, but they are also empty talkers. And as you read that, at least in my mind, it kind of seems like these people are actually more in danger of just being annoying than they were destructive, right? It says empty talkers or worthless talkers that their, their speech is just kind of empty. And you're like, okay, that's just annoying more than anything. It's not dangerous, is it? But one person says this, this language or the way that Paul describes these people is typically used to establish or to describe the emptiness of a belief or futility. And so when Paul says that they're empty talkers, he's not just talking about how annoying they are. He's describing that their belief system, that the way of life that they're thinking is, is futile, it's empty, it doesn't have any depth to it. And so truth and error are actually at stake. It's not just, hey, that annoying guy in the back or, hey, that weird lady who never is quiet. It's, it's more than that, that truth and error are at stake. And so he says that they're insubordinate, but they're also empty talkers. And then he goes on and he says that they're deceivers. They deceive people. And so we see that in the context here, as we continue and walk through this text, you're going to see that they aren't just kind of blabbing their mouth before and after church services. These people are teachers, that they're in a position where people are listening to what they have to say on a regular basis. They're not just gossipers and kind of like spreading falsehood here and there, but these people are teachers and they're doing so in a deceptive way. And so there's a danger here because these people are guilty. They're, they're culpable for their actions. They're not doing this mindlessly. They're coming in and they're trying to deceive people. You say, who would do something like this? Who are these people? Well, he says at the end of verse 10, he says this, especially those of the circumcision party. And so in Paul's day and to the people that he was talking to, the, the, the false teachers of his day could be described as those who are a part of the circumcision party. And so the false teachers that we're dealing with in Crete here, they were Jewish, that they were following Jewish myths. You see that in verse 14 as well. And so what is likely is that they would have been adding things to scripture, that they would have been adding different weights and burdens to people who were trying to follow Christ, that they would have upheld external rituals and traditions, that their teaching could be summarized like this, that to be spiritual, you need to, and then fill in the blank. Right? And so in order to be spiritual, you have to do X, Y, Z, and they would have attached rituals and different things to this. And while the book of Titus, it, it does mention, as you read through the book of Titus, you see that good works and that 
pursuing Christ with your life and that a certain kind of walk is necessary for the life of a believer to hold up these burdens and to add things to the gospel is deceptive and it's wrong, right? And so these false teachers, they're coming in and they're placing unnecessary burdens to the gospel. They're adding weights that are not needed. And unfortunately, what happens when this is that legalism is maybe the best case scenario in a situation like this, but ultimately a false gospel is what's at stake and that these false teachers were coming in and they were deceiving people and in, in adding burdens that they shouldn't add. We want to jump down, to, though, to verse 12, because Paul gives us kind of a response in verse 11, but in verse 12, he continues the description of what these people are like. And it's interesting, he does so by quoting a famous prophet or teacher. And so look with me at verse 12, it says this, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And there's a lot that could be said about this verse. As you read through commentaries, I'll just tell you what happens, okay? So I was reading this week and last week, looking through different commentaries, and I'll just kind of explain what you're going to find if you go and look. You're going to read a couple of paragraphs about verse 10, about how this means and what it fits, and you're going to read a couple of verses in verse 11 and maybe a couple paragraphs about what verse 11 means, and then you're going to come to verse 12 in a commentary or in some kind of study Bible, and you're going to see page after page after page after page of theologians debating about what this verse means, right? And there's a lot of things that they debate. A lot of people try to figure out who is it, this prophet that he was talking about. So, so it says a prophet, one of their own, a Cretan, he says this, who is that prophet? And most people agree that it's this guy by the name of Epimenides. Okay, so that's cool. Scholars are going to debate about what they call the liar's paradox. And basically the liar's paradox is this, that if a Cretan says that all Cretans are liars, can he be trusted? That's the liar's paradox. And you're like, okay. And, and that's, you know, it's good. It's exciting. Scholars and theologians are going to speculate about why Epimenides called Cretans liars. And most people say that it has something to do with the fact that the people of Crete claimed to have the tomb of Zeus. Okay. And so there's that. And, and all of these things are important. They help build on our understanding of the text. I think that there's value in that. But I think that there's a way simpler reason why Paul included this in here. I think that there's a, even below and, and underneath all of that, I think that there's the reason why Paul included this description is, is far more simple than that. And I think the reason he included it is to show that the disposition or the characters of the false teachers in, in Paul's day were exactly the same as the world. Were exactly the same as the world. So look what he says. He says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And so we can speculate about why what Epimenides said or, or all these different things but I think Paul did this because he wants to take an example of what the culture was like in the day and say that the false teachers were exactly the same and and again we can go back and forth but what's interesting and ironic about this is that when you consider the fact that the opponents would have been Jewish in nature that they would have been Jewish Christians in their mind they attached all of these rituals and synagogues and different things to their, to their religious, again, they, they held up these burdens that were difficult to bear. And, and what's ironic about this is that Paul, essentially, by quoting this guy, he's saying, you think you're so spiritual with your rituals and different things that you have going on. You think you're so great, but the reality is you're just like the pagan culture in which you live. You're just like the pagan culture. And we can go back and forth about whether or not it's a reliable source. Was Epimenides reliable? But the reality is Paul affirms the statement. Look with me what he says afterwards. Verse 13a, if you will. 
He says this testimony is true. This testimony is true. And so Paul holds up this pagan and who says that Cretans are this, this, and this. And then Paul says, that's true of you. That's true of the false teachers that are in your midst. It's that they're like the culture. And so you can see from the description of false teachers that it's not pretty, that they're divisive, they're deceptive. But notice with me next, I want you to see the description of of their deeds or the deeds of the false teachers. And we see that in verse 11. Paul says this, they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And so where does the danger lie? The danger doesn't lie in some sort of violent act. These people are not threatening to light their church on fire. None of those things are the danger. The danger is in their teaching. And so it makes sense that Paul says that they must be silenced. And look with me at what what they're doing. What are the things or the result of their poor teaching? It says this, that they're upsetting whole families. They're upsetting whole families. I love what John Calvin says. He says this, If the faith of one individual were in danger of being overturned, a pastor should immediately gird himself for combat. How much less tolerable is it to see whole households overturned? And his point is clear. It's not just one person that's at stake here. We're not talking about one person being you know, led astray. We're not talking about even two people. We're talking about entire families are being overturned and upset by the result of this false teaching. And so the stakes are high. The stakes are high. But notice second with me that their deeds include poor teaching or the content of their teaching is wrong. He says that they're teaching what ought not to be taught. And it's freaky the way that Paul describes it because he says not only are they teaching what ought not to be taught, but they're doing it for shameful gain. So there's, there's really two things going on in their teaching that's wrong, that they're teaching poor things, that they're, the content of their teaching is wrong, but they're doing it for poor motives, that they're doing it for shameful gain. And let me clarify that that doesn't mean it's sinful or wrong for a church to pay a pastor, right? I think that you should do that. In fact, throughout scripture, Paul says that if a pastor leads and teaches well, that you should pay him well, that, that a worker is worthy of his wages, right? And so Paul's not teaching that the, the problem here is that these teachers are getting paid. He's saying the problem is that the content of what they're getting paid for is wrong, but the motives for why they're teaching in the first place is sinful, that they're, they're greedy and they're after gain. And when a teacher is motivated by money, a distorted gospel and a distorted message is always close behind. That's just true. Why is that? Because truth is never going to be as popular as fluffy stuff, right? I hate to break it to you, but you're never going to sell as many books if you write truth as if you write fluffy stuff. It's just not going to happen. And, and so the reality is that a distorted message is always going to gain a bigger following than a true message. And so we're not shocked to find that there's false teachers that are doing so for poor and twisted gain, right? No one's falling out of their seats this morning saying, no way. You mean the false teachers were greedy? What? Like, no one here is shocked by that, right? Because it just seems to be kind of the the trend that it was true in Paul's day, and it's true in our day. And so then let me look with you at the response that we're supposed to have towards false teachers. And we see that in verse 13. So in light of their deeds, in light of their description, in light of what Paul has said, verse 13, he says this, Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound, in the faith, 
rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And in this verse, we see two things. We see both a harshness in our response that we should have towards these people, but we also see hope. We see that Paul is not telling Titus, hey, go to the false teachers and ask them nicely to stop. Right? He doesn't say, hey, go to the false teachers and say, hey, would you just please stop teaching heresy? Right? He's not saying that. He says rebuke them sharply. So there's a harshness that's involved. But the harshness is because of the severity of the issue, that he's upsetting entire families. These people are upsetting whole families. So the issue is severe, so the response should be severe. And as parents, you kind of understand what that's like, don't you? You, you know what this is like, right? That if your kid disobeys in a big way that seems to indicate something's going on in his heart, you're probably going to rebuke and, and discipline in a way that maybe is more severe than if they just, like, tripped their cousin by accident, right? Like, there's a severity that goes along with the severity of the issue. But we also see that there's a hope. There's hope involved in here. So he says, rebuke them sharply, but he also says that they may be sound in the faith, that they may be sound in the faith. And so we see that Paul's desire is not that we would simply condemn these people, but Paul's desire is that having rebuked them sharply, these people would come back and see truth for what it is, that they would be healthy, that the church would be full and alive. He, he holds that out as a possibility, and he describes what a healthy faith looks like. Verse 14, he says, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and not devoting themselves to the commands of people who turn from the truth. And so what's a healthy church look like? It looks like not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. This is what it was like in Paul's context. And again, I, parents, you know what this is like, that if you're driving home this afternoon, this might happen, uh, and one of your kids is kind of just like selfish towards a, one of the siblings or something, your response might not be that severe, right? But imagine with me for a moment, this is a totally hypothetical situation, but imagine with me for a moment that one day one of your children or somebody, your neighbor kid or something, you see them just piling all of their siblings' socks in the backyard, just all of their socks, all of their clothing, and like dumping lighter fluid on it and gasoline. Like I'm telling you, it's hypothetical. This is, And then in spite, in, intentionally, they dump gasoline on it and light the whole thing up just because they're mad at their siblings like as a parent you're like go to your room you're grounded for 10 years don't ever come out i'm gonna spank you at the end of that right like you're just like this the punishment would be severe why because the situation is severe but you would hope that in disciplining your child they would grow up to be a respectful citizen and not an arsonist right and so there's hope in your rebuke and the same is true it's a silly situation but the same is true for for paul his rebuke is harsh, but it's filled with hope. He hopes that these people would turn back to the truth and that they would see God's grace in the gospel for what it truly is. And so the big idea this morning is this, that false teachers should be sharply rebuked in hope of restoration. That false teachers should be sharply rebuked in hope of restoration. And so in these verses so far, we've seen, we've seen two things. Well, three things. We've seen the description of the false teachers. We've seen the deeds of the false teachers. And we've seen the response to the false teachers. But then in verse 15 and 16, Paul exposes the heart of the issue. He says, you know, their teaching is wrong. Their deeds are wrong. They're upsetting families. But let me just get even lower to the heart of what's going on here. And we find that the heart of the problem is exactly that. It's their heart. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. It says this, to the pure... All things are pure, 
But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good works. And it's possible, it's, I'm assuming that you've probably heard these words before, right? To the pure, all things are pure. In college, I had a friend who would say this every time he did something that was like a little bit edgy. We were like, yeah, you might get in trouble for that. And he'd be like, nope, to the pure, all things are pure. And you're like, I don't think that's what that means, right? Pretty sure. So what does it mean? To the pure, all things are pure. We know for a fact that there are things that just aren't pure, right? Like adultery is always unpure. Murder is always unpure. Fornication is always unpure. Like there are things that just, they're always unpure. It's never, like it doesn't matter how good you think your heart is, it's wrong. And so we know that that's not true. I was joking with somebody and saying that an, an evidence of like all things not being pure is like being an Ohio State Buckeye fan. So like I'm a Michigan fan. I can't stand the Ohio State Buckeyes. So I was joking like this verse is clearly not talking about all things are pure. Like the Ohio State Buckeyes never pure, right? But in order, amen. Like, <laughs> but in order to understand what Paul's talking about, we need to realize that he's using the word pure in two different ways. So he's using the word pure in one sense in a morally pure way, like my heart is pure, what's going on in me is pure, and he's also using it in a sense of ritually pure. So we remember he's talking to Jews here. And so what Paul is saying is that all things are ritually pure in terms of ceremonially clean, ritually pure to those who are morally clean, or to say it another way, to the morally pure person, all things are ritually pure. And so what he's really trying to say is he's trying to get above and beyond all of these rituals that they were dealing with, all these checklists that they had, all these burdens that they were putting above people and saying, you know what, at the end of the day, if your heart is right before God, all of these things, they don't matter the way that you think they do. And that the issue is actually the heart. That's why he says, verse 15, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And this is exactly what Jesus talked about in the Gospels, isn't it? I'm going to read a passage from Mark chapter 7, verse 14. It says this, And he called the people again to him and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but all things that come out of a person defile him. And when he'd entered the house, he left the people and his disciples asked him about the parable. And they said to him, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? He then said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things that come from within, they're what defile a person. And this is what Paul is trying to say, that to the pure all things are pure. If your heart is right before God, the things that come out are going to be pure. That the things that, you, like, that you're eating and those things, those aren't what make a person impure. What makes a person impure is what comes out of them, out of the heart, essentially. And that's why these false teachers, you see that their teaching is an issue. And so Paul's trying to drive this home, and then he says one more thing. He says that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And if you have your Bible, if you're like one of those people that marks in your Bible, I just want you to circle the word good works. And then as we continue through Titus over the next couple of weeks, every time you see the, the term good works, be aware of that. Be looking out for that, not because 
Paul's trying to teach that salvation is by good works, but because Paul asserts over and over and over that good works are the evidence and the fruit of the life of a believer. And what I love about Titus, I was reading it again like this week, it's so cool that he says, you know, they're unfit for good works. So that's evidence that there's something going on in their heart. He says that you need to, you know, be ready for good works, be quick to good works, all these different things. But then right in the middle of Titus, right in the middle, he says that God saved us not by works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And so what we see throughout the book of Titus is this, that good works are the fruit of a life changed by the gospel. But it is the gospel and faith alone that can save a person. And I love it. And so what he says here is that these people, they profess to know God. They say they know God, but their works deny him, that there's not the fruit that comes from that. And so there's a lot of things we see, but ultimately when he comes down to it, he says the heart of the problem is their heart. That their teaching is wrong, but ultimately their heart is messed up. And it'd be really easy today to leave thinking, Nick, I am so glad that you taught on false teachers, right? It'd be really easy to think that is great. Now we know what to look for so they can't get in here, right? It's easy to think of false teachers as out there, but we're in here and so we're safe. But the sobering reality today is that there is false teacher tendencies in your heart and in mine this morning, aren't there? There are false teacher tendencies in every single one of us. And I want to give you just three that are from the text. Just three. And there's probably more, but... The first one is this, that too often our disposition matches the world. In verse 12, Paul quotes this prophet or this teacher, and he says he's doing so basically to show that the false teachers are acting the same way as the world. And we can, you know, get all on, on their case about that, but the reality is it is so easy, isn't it, to have a disposition, to have character that's no different from the world. Let me give you two examples of this. How do you respond when you see things in the news and in the politics that we see in the world, how does that change the way you think about God? How does that impact your happiness? It's, I work at the elections every once in a while. It's a great way to get paid, uh, get to meet unbelievers. But so often, somebody's happiness is just completely directed by what happens in politics and what they see on the news. And can I just share with you, I love the nation that we're in. But man, it makes me scared to see believers who are more concerned about who's sitting in office than the name of their neighbor across the street who needs to know Jesus, right? And so don't allow your happiness and your joy to be directed based on what you see in the news. This is just one way. Here's one more. What does your boss think of you at work? He says that Cretans are lazy gluttons, and I hope that that's not true of you. But man, as believers, we should be like the best and hardest working people that our bosses know, right? That when we go to work, they should be like, dude, that is a guy that works hard. I don't even know why. Like, he goes home, and he's not throwing his family under the bus, but man, when he's here, he's working hard. And I hope that your disposition matches that of a, a follower of Jesus, not of the world, right? And there's thousands, thousands of other examples we could give, but those are just two. Those are two that I'm probably guilty of, and that's why I gave them, right? So let me give you another way that we have false teacher tendencies, and it's this, that too often we think of sin as something external that happens to us rather than something that flows from our heart. It's easy to come to church to check off all the right boxes, to read the right devotional books, to sing the right songs, to listen to the right music, and to think, okay, I'm good. But the reality is that sin is something that lies deep within our heart. It's, it's a disposition of our heart. It's not primarily something that happens to us. And so when you and I find ourselves sinning, when you and I find us saying things that are wrong, 
It's because there's something wrong with our hearts. And the problem, and, and our biggest issue, my biggest issue, your biggest issue this morning, our biggest issue is that we have hearts that are desperately wicked, right? We have hearts that ha- are rebellious against God. One more way that we have false teacher tendencies. It's this, that too often we profess God with our mouth, but we deny him with our actions. And that's what he says. He says that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And I doubt that anyone here would verbally deny God, but the reality is that throughout the week, I'm sure I'm so guilty of this. It's, it's sad to think, but we deny God t- all the time with our actions. That this happens when we claim to love God, but gossip about God's people. It happens when we claim to love God, but have no concern for people's souls. It happens when we say that God offers fullness of joy, but throughout the week we're the least joyful people. We know that we profess God with our mouths, but we deny him with our actions. And so Paul gives us in these, these passages as we close, he gives us the description of false teachers. He says, look out, be on guard. Don't let him creep into your assembly. And he tells what the solution is, that it's good doctrine. It's godly leaders. It's people that can present the word of God with clarity. He says, look out. But man, we would be deceiving ourselves, wouldn't we, if we thought that we don't struggle with some of those same things that these false teachers did. And so my challenge to you today is to examine your heart. What ways do you find yourself just slipping into some of these false teacher tendencies? He gives us a good description of how they sin and what they do. And so what's the solution? The solution is to repent and to place yourself, again, back under good teaching of Scripture, to believe the Bible, to trust the Bible, and to hold that out as your guide for life. So what areas do you need to repent this morning? What areas do I need to repent this morning of the tendencies that I have towards being a false teacher or the the ways that the false teacher tendencies can slip into my life? That's my challenge for you this morning. We want to have hearts that are right before God, don't we? We want to have hearts that are right before God. And so consider and see what is it in your life that you need to change. Let me pray with you this morning, and then I believe we have one more song uh, we'll sing together. Lord, we just praise you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that in your love and in your sovereignty, you gave us your word to direct us. And God, we want to be faithful to you. And Lord, we recognize that there are a lot of pressures in the world that are weighing into our opinions of what we think about scripture, that there are false teachers, that there are deceptive people in the world that would want nothing more than to destroy the church. And so God, we praise you that you give us a warning, but Lord, we praise you even more that we aren't the ones that build your church, that Jesus builds the church and that the gates of hell can't destroy it. And so we're not the ones out there just trying to flounder and to save your church. Lord, you promised to build your church. And we ask that we would be faithful to come alongside and to be a part of that. Lord, convict us from your word. Show us areas that we need to change. Expose areas where our tendencies are just like these false teachers. And God, give us the strength and the faith to repent and to believe the gospel again. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs)